0: Hey, welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour, brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies and the Graduate School for Public International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Hello, listeners. Really quick before we get to the interview with Elaine Bunn, uh, during this interview, I referred to the minimal global minimization strategy. It's actually called the Minimal exposure strategy on CSIS. Uh, Please feel free to look it up. And my apologies to Elaine Bunn and our listeners. Please enjoy the rest of the interview. I'm your host, Adam Dietrich. And today we are lucky enough to have former DASTY Elaine Bunn here to talk to us about deterrence, American um, interest in global security, and nuclear weapons. And we also have another uh, Ridgeway fellow, Matthew Pettick. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Great Thank to be you. here.
0: All right, Elaine. The first question I have, because it's, it's on everyone's lips as we go through the uh, Department of Defense like budget review, is the W93 a new weapon that we're wielding?
1: Uh, I am learning about this along with you. I only worked for 40 years in government and on <laughs> nuclear issues. Uh, I've been reading the same newspaper articles you have. <laughs> so I don't know that I can give you any inside scoop on it. I mean, I can tell you that, um, uh, gee... A new number for a nuclear weapon uh, would seem to indicate that maybe they've got something a little different in
0: mind. Someone feels it's new.
1: Yeah, bit, yeah, right? because certainly the life extension programs that we've been going through, um, it's basically trying to rebuild and use as much as what was left, uh, I should take them apart and put them back together, as possible, replacing uh, analog for digital and that kind of thing and parts that you can't get anymore, but they tend to keep the same number like the b sixty one twelve that replaces, uh, some earlier versions of that and consolidates. So, uh, I am, I will be interested to see as well. Sorry, I can't give you. No, more no, on no, that no. One. that's,
0: that's fine. Uh, you've worked on like several nuclear posture reviews before, but not the, not the 2018 one, but, uh, for our, our listeners who maybe aren't quite equated with all the, uh, little isms of of our nuclear defense strategy. Uh, Can you talk about why we might be interested in adding a new lower-yield nuclear weapon to uh, our
1: uh, arsenal? Okay. Um, So that one, I'm assuming you're talking about the lower-yield warhead for the Trident submarine-based ballistic missile. Yes. Because that one has been in the press a good bit lately. Um, It was something that the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review did posit as something they planned to do, and their rationale, as explained in that NPR, really had to do with Russia and concerns about Russia's doctrine. Um, Obviously, a lot more attention to Russia post-2014. There was probably a 25-year period uh, where uh, NATO didn't think much about Russia in in a nuclear Weapons since, where the U.S. you know thought about it, but in terms of arms control or cooperation or security, whatever. Uh, But 2014 was a real turning point, I think, uh, for both NATO and the U.S. with regard to Russia. And of course, that was when uh, Russia went into Ukraine and, and illegally annexed Crimea as its own, and so forth. So it was a real turning point. And and then the some of the nuclear saber rattling rhetoric. That Putin has used, and some and some other things that the Russians have done, but the the idea that um, the assessment of their doctrine that says, look, it's not that they want to use necessarily are eager to use nuclear weapons, but if they, the assessment was that if they got into a conflict, maybe it starts off uh, conventionally or messing around in the in their what they consider their sphere of influence, but if they're losing conventionally, they they uh, might use a low-yield nuclear weapon, which uh, they might think would paralyze NATO or make the U.S. and NATO pull back and say, well, this isn't worth it. Um, So what the nuclear posture, you said, was we don't want them to think that. Therefore, if they think we wouldn't respond because we only have big weapons, we want to be sure they understand that we have something that would be roughly equivalent and that they can't do that, so they were the the assessment. In the NPR was they were doing it to be sure Russia was deterred from thinking that its use of low yield low yield nuclear weapons would be to their benefit.
2: I think it's interesting to point out um, where the whole need for a low yield um, weapon comes from, and it generally comes from at least in, you know, you know, for my research is that it comes from uh, conventional disparities between mm-hmm. two. Um, So, of course, you know, my research was mainly in India and Pakistan, and Pakistan defends their uh, development um, of low-yield weapons um, to basically halt an Indian rapid invasion, which part of that is, you know, there is this rumor that India has a force ready on the border to invade uh, Pakistan in the event Pakistan did some sort of, um, you know, gray zone type of attack, like a Mumbai style of attack, they could invade Pakistan. And basically, you know, take territory, and then Pakistan's response to that would be to just like like annihilate the theater and, and basically stop stop stop, the, like, stop war fighting. Um, and, I, and I think I, I I think Russia is is following the the same line of thinking. Is that you know th- like they see NATO as this um, big, huge conventional um, power, and like essentially, you know, like Russia does have a you know sizable military, but I mean, I think their spending is what uh, I'm going to say it's less than 100 billion. I think I don't quote me on that, but um, and, but then you but then you have the UK as part of NATO, France, like you have these really big military powers, and of course Germany. Um, in the event that there was ever a war, especially in the Baltics, I mean, um, like I, I guess Russia's line I think would be you know like like if they were to invade or if they had like a bunch of warships out in in, in the Baltic Sea, we could just drop a tactical nuke, annihilate the
0: The front and then kind of start over. Um, I mean, I guess that assumes the idea that using strategic weapons is not proportional to low yield weapons. There's some assumption there that one does not equal the other. And yet on maybe the public side, the idea of any nuclear weapon use is somewhat equivalent. So maybe there's a dissonance here between experts or defense thinkers and the way the public perceives nuclear weapons. Right.
1: And, and my view is that any use of nuclear weapons is a strategic event. I mean, mm-hmm. so tactical is almost a misnomer for them. It would fundamentally change, I think, the way we saw a conflict if, if somebody else used nuclear yeah. weapons. However, I think you're onto something there when you say, uh, historically, there have been times when the U.S., and NATO feeling conventionally inferior, yeah. mm-hmm. um, we had lots of what we then call tactical nuclear weapons in Europe, uh, and now uh, you know seven percent, a large percentage of those have been have been withdrawn. So the question is, you know, are we conventionally superior? Could we handle that conventionally? And this is part of the debate that goes mm-hmm. on with it. The, the, the does the U.S. and NATO collectively have a lot of conventional capability? Yes. Is it always exactly where it needs to be, when it needs to be? Yeah. No. Oh, for the U.S., we have commitments worldwide. Yeah. And so our our ability to project those conventional forces forward mm-hmm. takes time. Yeah, And a lot of concern is, would we be able to be there in time?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that's one area where, like we talk about, U.S. military mm-hmm. superiority, and, and I mean, there's a lot of different contexts there, but our ability to project power and rapidly grow combat power mm-hmm. is like really not been matched by by anyone, at least provenly. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the idea is that the use of these tactical weapons, at least in NATO context for for, for Russian context, looking at NATO is mm-hmm. not that we have the forces that we have there are a sufficient surge force, but that we could build a surge force very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. So they're almost viewed as like it's a blunting ability. Mm-hmm. And there's also
2: something uh, also, you know, worthy of noting about these loyal weapons is for them to be truly effective and for them to have a you know, like a true deterrent effect, um, you cannot wait for, you know, like a supreme launch authority. You have to like delegate the authority or at least the thinking is you have to delegate that authority to like mid-level uh, battlefield commanders who can like launch those weapons and like stop like whatever conventional um, assault is, you know, cause like you couldn't wait for example, like you, like like say NATO was um, you know, overtaking Russia or, or or India was overtaking Pakistan. I mean, like, you couldn't wait for Putin or, or the prime minister or, or however Pakistan's command structure is set up to, you know, give the okay. You would have to, you know, give those battlefield commanders the the final call to launch those tactical well, weapons. And that's kind of worrying, especially, you know. Um,
1: that is certainly, um, that was certainly true for the U.S. in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, and there is concern. I mean, there's this debate about, you know, Pakistan and how, you know, who, how do you handle battlefield mm-hmm. uh, weapons that could get overtaken and so forth. Um, I'm not so sure that for Russia, I know that for the U.S., for a lower yield nuclear warhead on a, on a Trident submarine launch ballistic missile, that authority would not be delegated down to. The captain of the submarine, mm-hmm. and or, or to anybody lower than it's the president who makes that mm-hmm. decision. Um, I don't know, and in Russia, I don't have any reason to believe that they have would have pre-delegated down that authority. It is historically that's a concern, mm-hmm. and it may be some concern in newer nuclear nations. Yeah. Um, so it's a good it's a good question as to how much should we worry about that one, in a in a. Russia, U.S. NATO context.
2: Yeah, I mean, I like I think it goes back and to some you know, others, yes. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, like I mean, like um, I think it goes back to just how comprehensive and how um, you know delegated the like the command and, uh, and control structure are in these countries. And like you're right, you know, Russia and the U.S. probably have the two most uh, developed uh, nuclear programs. Whereas you know, Pakistan, I mean, one of the worries is you know their command controls, their command and control structure isn't really. Um, it's kind of Gray areas, you know, we don't really know, um, you know, who has the authority, um, and also, you know, you have to worry about the fact, like the the factions uh, in Pakistan's military as well, uh,
1: or North Korea's, which yeah. probably the command and control system is even is even less mature. Uh, it's it's new newer nuclear weapon states have to go through. It took us a long time to, and and still there are there, there there can be problems that arise, but but it takes a long time to develop not just the stuff of the capabilities, but the procedures and the training and the,
0: all that. The, just, the
2: institutional muscles required. Right, right. But um, I, I, I do think you brought up a good point about, you know, historically how we did, and, and you know, sort of the Soviet Union, they, they delegated authority, authority, uh, especially during like the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example. Yeah. Um, I think it was the Russian commanders, I think they were in subs, um, in, I guess I, I guess in the Caribbean, Uh, had the pre-delegated launch authority that they and they could launch and i think um i want to say they came close but they didn't because the commander it's been a while it's been a while
1: it's been a while
2: but um like he didn't because he said i don't want to start i don't want to like start this because like you know like there is this fear of escalation you know because like yes it's just a low-yield weapon but i mean how like how exactly do you respond to a low-yield tactical weapon um, yes. like, and
1: that was in '62, when you know the last nuclear weapon had been used in '45. We are now, how uh, many? Okay, help me do the math right here. 75 <laughs> years since a nuclear weapon has been used, and that, you know, Lieutenant you know, talks about the the nuclear taboo. But there has been this uh, uh, historical uh, norm built up that. You know, this is, it's really serious. You don't just go using a nuclear weapon. And as I say, I think for us, it would, if somebody did, it would fundamentally change the nature of the conflict. You may not think it's a big deal because it's low yield. We think it's a very big deal. Yeah. So.
0: No, absolutely.
1: And so low yield. Can we put that in perspective? Yeah. Uh, so the, the. Please. The tri- new Trident warhead, which there the were press reports actually, uh. The Undersecretary of Defense for Policy evidently confirmed it in January before he left his office, before he left his position, uh, that we had indeed already deployed this this lower yield. There are other capabilities in the U.S. Uh, stockpile, which, uh, in the in the deployed stockpile, which have lower yields than that one. They're air, air delivered, uh, which sometimes air defenses make a difference. So again, this is all about. What does the other guy believe that we believe that they believe that we believe? This is about affecting the 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 calculus of the other Mm -hmm. leader to say, don't even go there. This won't work out well for you.
0: Mm -hmm. Speaking speaking of like deterrence, uh, not to transition like too roughly, um, we have at least like one still still in uh, major. Democratic candidate Elizabeth Warren, who's talked about implementing a no-first-use policy for the U.S. How do no-first-use policies affect deterrence, particularly the, the U.S.'s responsibility of strategic deterrence and the, the nuclear umbrella, as it's called? I'm sure you have uh, opinions about this.
1: Oh, yeah. we is uh, <laughs> debated pretty much in every nuclear posture review, and so I've been involved in several of those, and then sometimes it gets ba- debated in between. Sometimes it's it's a no-first-use of nuclear weapons, sometimes it's the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter other nuclear weapons. Um, there's several issues there. One is um, really other really bad weapons, certainly biological weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my worst nightmare is contagious bio used as a weapon. Um, and then chemical weapons, especially some of the new types of chemical weapons that could be uh, developed. We don't have them. We don't, we, we forswore those in the BW convention, uh, convention, in the the CW convention. So we don't have them. How do you, what do you do about actors that do still have them if they used them, if they were going to employ them against us or our allies? How do you deter that? Is our conventional forces adequate to do that or not? Or is a, the, the, the option of considering the use of nuclear weapons does that add weight to the deterrent side of the, the scales or not? So that's, that's one issue with it. Another um, has to do with, um, with allies um, and how comfortable they would be with a no first use pledge. Uh, sometimes allies can, it would have to be a no first use of nuclear weapons against us or our allies, I think, to, solve, to, to address that. So it's not just about us, it's about our allies as well. But then there's, what about other WMD? I mean, I would be more comfortable in the discussion if it were no first use, we won't be the first ones to use weapons of mass destruction, including chem and bio, uh, as well as nuclear, against someone, uh, against another um, actor, unless they used it against us or our allies. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it gets shortened to something that gets really misunderstood,
2: yeah, so I mean, as far as you know, these NFUs go, um, it, like it's hard to be an NFU country while still maintaining first strike capabilities, uh, because you know the whole premise of no first use is that you will only use nuclear weapons if you like, if like, if a nuclear weapon or you know a weapon of mass destruction was ever used against you. So I mean, like one good example of of of, of an of an NFU is you know India um and you know they really only maintain second strike capabilities at least for now um and they have what's called a credible minimum minimal deterrent which means that they only have so many warheads um you know ready to go um in the event that they were attacked to credibly uh deter um an adversary and in this case their their number one adversary as far as you know or well the one adversary they're most worried about is China um and the way they have their their nuclear uh posture or like their like, like their nuclear, um, oh, what do you call it? System set up is that they actually um, they have their warheads in and, and the missiles separate. So like they're decoupled. It's, um, it's not like it is in the U S where in the silos um, they're always ready to go. Essentially like they're ready um, at the, at the push of a button basically. Um, whereas in India, that's not the case. They would have to get hit first and then they would have to assemble those weapons and then launch those weapons. Um, uh, granted that that would take time, um, and but like I, I, you know, at the same time, it like it also like removes the accidental launch because you have to like, you would have to put those weapons together and then launch them, whereas you know um, if, if like if they're already together, you know it could be someone sitting at a desk or whatever and they accidentally hit a button or whatever something goes wrong, um, but what like what I'm trying to get back to is you know it would be really hard for the U.S. to do a, a, a true no first use posture i mean like i mean like we can say we won't hit you first which i mean like i think we do kind of say that because i think i don't know what the actual doctrine says i mean um i think it's like it we we might use them in the event that we're overwhelmed or something like that or our forces or allies or no uh we we
1: have a a, we won't use nuclear weapons against a nation that does not have nuclear weapons Ah. and is not allied with a nuclear weapon state okay so if, if you don't have them and you're not buddies with somebody who has them. We won't use them against you. Yeah. Okay. But um, but that doesn't apply to nuclear weapons states. Yeah. That threaten us or our allies. Yeah. Um, so your point about um, it's an interesting point about uh, a second strike capability, and you know you wouldn't have first strike capability if you had a no first use uh, policy pledge commitment. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that for a second strike capability, you need to have forces that are survivable. They yeah. can survive a strike by somebody else. And you could still, in whatever time, doesn't have to be immediately, at some point, you can respond to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the deterrent threat there. Uh, and that means you've got to have command and control systems. That can survive as well, doesn't yeah. it? But um, if you've got that second strike capability, what is it that, prevents it from being used first. Um, I I got it that if you don't mate things, uh, you know, great. But even if they're not mated in a crisis, if you mate, uh, you could still use them
2: first. Well, I mean, and and, and that's the thing is like these doctrines at the end of the day, they're just words on paper and um, you could always break them in wartime, especially. Um, Peacetime, it's unlikely unless you get like a deranged leader uh, or somebody or you know something happens and, or somebody gets a hold of the weapons or whatever um but yeah i mean in more time you know ex- you know especially with the fog of war anything can happen and that's what's kind of you know worrying about nuclear weapons especially like low-yield weapons is you know expe- especially you know like the more warheads you have you know um they can get lost and um you know accidents happen i mean the u.s has had our fair share of you could, you
1: could accidentally put a nuclear cruise missile, hang it on a bomber that was going on a conventional mission, and not know it's nuclear, thinking it's conventional. Which the right? U.S. Which has... happened. happened us. <laughs> yeah. And who there would was do a that? big, <laughs> right. Somebody didn't do the, you know, somebody wasn't adequately trained, didn't do the checklist. They, I mean, there were lots of things yeah. that happened there. Um,
2: but, yeah. But, I, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are no promises. I mean, like, I, th- I, think, I think when it gets back to the whole, you know, do- the whole doctrinal thinking uh, part about, you know, nuclear. Um, uh programs is how like how do you like deploy them is, is like is a big telltale sign of um you know how like you know how like, like how likely is an accidental launch uh, or you know something
0: like that or just um, like a peacetime launch so I yeah. think that you made a point though about um how it, it it's just words and I, I think it really applies because like who are the the non first use states that exist I mean it's not you know the united states and it's not most of these doctrines are generally classified by that country so we don't act, like they're, like they're not very public about at the same like, time isn't, no isn't first the use. point of non-first use to kind of, i the way i see it is it's like in the cold war it made a lot of sense when you had the united states and you had the soviet union both of those were, were first use they had strategic deterrence and then they it, was of mm-hmm. yeah. it was a way of separating these other country it was a way of China or India or these other countries from being like, well, we're not necessarily part of that. Yes, we have nuclear weapons, but we're not trying to compete with you on that level. That's why those countries still have much less strategic. I know you don't like the idea of tactical nuclear weapons, but there's a difference. Like, yeah. I'm going to use the difference of strategic okay. and lower shorter yield.
1: range, lower yield. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So there's, um, it's a way of creating definition in this space when there were the big players and not. And I get, we'll, we'll skip to it a little bit here, but there's now that. We're not in the Cold War, and it's not necessarily bilateral. We're we're reapproaching these things. It's like, how does... The current administration wants, when we ask about new start, they're like, well, let's get China in here, because there's a lot of other ways that China is now a global competitor and so forth. Great power competition refers to them Russia and the United States. Uh, but in terms of strategic nuclear weapons, their threshold is much lower um, than Russia and they the United States. Their numbers West. are lower. So, yeah, yes. Um, so, in terms of... Um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, <laughs> just had so many things <laughs> going on. Uh, no, no. Um, Ins-
1: trying to get them into negotiations when the, the yeah. Let's just transition to that and- question. That's fine. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, the, does trilateral negotiations make sense currently with new start? We're we totally bungling this out. Of there. We'll, I, we'll we'll <laughs> okay, come we'll back cut. to some other things. Cut. Cut. But yeah, cut, I, like, I definitely want
2: to go back to tactical tactical nuclear weapons uh, later. But we can definitely talk about like um, tri- trilateral.
1: Trilateral what, negotiations. What it, so what was the transition? Were you gonna cut that? Where, where, where should we go back? <laughs> I do mean I wasn't anything? even
0: gonna, we we can keep this level of uh going on here so everyone knows it's authentic. <laughs> 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 I just got on a I got on a rant. Um let's do you mind talking about we'll do arms control and come back to, to weapons because I have sure. other things with sure. weapons as well. Um, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, trilateral negotiations and new start. Is that a good starting point?
1: Um, well, so New START does uh, expire on February 18th, 2021, and it hasn't been extended yet. Uh, Russians have expressed some interest, but I think this administration hasn't decided uh, because they would like it to be a trilateral agreement expanded to include the Chinese. Uh, China's made it very clear they're not interested in that as long as there's this disparity in numbers and so forth. And uh, so. I don't think that will happen anytime soon. My view is extend the New START Treaty for the five years that's allowed in the in the agreement. Uh, don't even have to go back to the Senate for, for ratification. And then use that time to get really serious about what would a trilateral agreement look like? You know, China's gonna wanna bring in the Brits and the French, uh, we, we already know that. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it that would make it in the interest of China as well as the US and Russia uh to to have an agreement um is it is it bringing in other kinds of capabilities is it bringing in whatever they're worried about uh, along with what we're worried about so i think it's going to take some time to get to that and so in the meantime uh do the do the, extend the new start treaty have some insights into what each side is doing the, the inspection regime for that has worked pretty well Yeah you know, there's some little along the margins, disagreements about it. But, but but overall, that one's worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. So it gives each side insight into what's, what the other is doing on the covered systems. Providing so, transparency, yeah. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So,
0: I mean, does does China even, have they even proven that they have the, the institutional muscles or, or capabilities of executing? Because, like, as you mentioned, some form of bilateral, at least discussions about the nuclear issue, let alone, Treaties um, have been, uh, you yeah, know, we've been doing that with the, with the, before with the Soviets and now with the Russians. Uh, China hasn't really had to engage in those talks yet. Um, has uh, Beijing seemed like they're willing to engage on this?
1: On inspections or on, oh, you're inst- building yeah, institutions. Yeah, I mean, let, let's, let's talk about control. like the, no, the institutional are, muscles of arms right, right, control or right. norms building. over the building last 20 years there's been um, a growth in China of people who, a broader set of you know, government think tanks and um, people in government who are thinking about nuclear issues and what's going on in the world and monitoring other people's arms control agreements. And there have been some NGOs and think tanks who've even suggested that maybe maybe you should allow the Chinese to come on some inspections so that you see you're not giving away the crown jewels. Each side is protecting uh, the... the uh, the n- nuclear design secrets of their force. So you're suggesting, a, that. Uh,
0: you're suggesting but, like but having can, the Chinese officials shadow U.S. and Russian I, I uh, wasn't, but there have
1: been people in think tanks and so forth who have suggested mm, that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't, you know, as far uh-huh. as I know, it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that the Chinese have expressed uh, any official um, desire for that right. because it probably would be run counter to what they're saying right now, which is we're not interested in being involved in this. Yeah. The, the kind of arms it's to the arms their advantage to right now out. to stay out of it right
2: right yeah, yeah and um, I think you brought up an interesting point in the talk earlier about how you know China sees it as you all have so many warheads you know why would we want or like to ever get into an arms agreement with you I think that's a good point um I mean China has demonstrated that they want to stop uh proliferation um in countries like North Korea and uh, you know most recently Iran um they uh they, they like the JCPOA, which they are a signatory on, um, and they, they, they don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Um, so, I mean, like, there is this kind of, like, you know, they are working to stop, you know, proliferation. Um, I mean, they do
0: have three con- three nuclear countries, uh, you know, mm-hmm. four. Actually, this would be North about, Korea this would be on a, their like border. It's a limitation. Well, it's actually, it's a reduction treaty. It's not even just a limitation treaty as well. New START in particular. It's so like the idea of like if China signed on to New Start, it was written today. It wouldn't. I mean, it would provide them to do inspections, but in terms of the, the limit count, like they're, they, they, they're, they're so far below it. They build up a lot. They're like, oh, that I, we can that. Add, we can add another yeah. like thousands or so of weapons go to, right, to, right. to hit the minimum threshold. So it's it it's this, it's almost silly to talk about it indirectly that context, but more broader is where we're seeing a little bit more agreement.
2: Yeah, so I mean, like, um, I mean, I mean, like, you could have, like, I mean, like, you could have a trilateral agreement and set the number, you know, high and give China the the ability to kind of like build up arms, but I mean, to me, like, like,
1: like, Oh would that be in our interest or Russia's interest?
2: No, I mean, because then you'd have India following suit because India would be worried about the disparity between China. They like they they would their credible minimum deterrent would then go up, and then you of course you would have Pakistan that would follow suit because, um, you know, you know. In South Asia, you know, you had China get their nuke, and then, I want to say it was in the 90s, no, I think it was this the peaceful blast that India did. Was India it, was in the, the 70s. 70s, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so in the <laughs> 70s, they got theirs, and then Pakistan in the 90s, you know, and it, it followed this like kind of like train, it's just India got theirs to deter China, and then Pakistan got theirs to deter India, and it's just, I mean, if, if you uh, let China yeah. build up, India will build up, and then you just have so many nukes clustered in South Asia. Nah, that's where wor- it's worrisome for me it doesn't necessarily
0: more weapons does not add stability no no way. i have to- i have to disagree
2: with was-, was that was that waltz that made that argument mm-hmm. yeah as well yeah more
1: yeah
2: H-
0: no i'm oh that's a that's a,
1: whole-
2: that's a
0: whole other area yes uh so we- we- we're kind of getting to the air where we can talk about reductions and so forth it- so I-, I don't know how familiar you are elaine with Kathleen Hicks's global minimization strategy paper that she I'm just very did. familiar
1: with Kathleen Hicks, but the global minimization strategy it's a, it's I a recent
0: a uh, brief that they, I read
1: her recent article in yeah, Foreign yeah. Affairs, but but it was about the defense budget. But
0: uh, this was it. so this is published through CSIS. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a it's actually a very broad strategy, and it, it kind of and skips over sure. it. It addresses like a political will, I think, that's on both parts at different points about. You could call it retrenchment. You could call it isolationism. It, it doesn't really address like those aspects, but it's like if we did that, what would the defense look like? But I'm going to specifically focus on the nuclear weapons part, okay. which, um, or, or at least one or two two aspects of it. One, the idea that the United States could unilaterally draw down to 500 weapons, and two that she argues for. A reduction from the triad to a dyad with submarines and ICBMs. No, like no. remove the air wing. And I'm wondering if you can see the any logic to that I'm aspect. I'm
1: going to have to read this because <laughs> I'm, I yeah. Okay, <laughs> she's just you, making you a very me, puzzled face. Me, yes, right yes you caught me off guard on that. Uh, I've read I similar it. things though. Oh, I, I, the, yes, I, I've, I've mm. read similar things too, and right. there are people who and say I, you know we only need thirty, there we only need five hundred, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that the, the key concern for me there is perceptions. Mm-hmm. Perceptions matter in this business. And she,
0: to be fair, she also and allies. So she argues no, for and she also argues for eliminating extended deterrence. Totally. Are you? sure? Okay. I'm,
1: I'm not
0: well, I'm getting this. To, is this is what? Like I said, I, I think it takes a baseline of if. U.S. defense was only focused on the homeland. Uh, it, it so kind of she's has not
1: this, advocating this. She's saying, so, what would it look like if... Yeah,
0: like she's not went, arguing oh, the political position, but she is building yeah. a structure of what that would look like. Yeah, so I'm not but, trying to put yeah, words this, in her mouth. This,
1: I think this is probably... Okay. I'm, I've <laughs> known Gab a long time, and I'm having trouble thinking she's advocating she, I was lucky else. enough to
0: hear she guest spoke at one of the CSIS like, classes I was taking last fall, and it was about counter-violent extremism. But okay. Yeah, no, I I just think it's... the. Let's just address the idea of could the U.S. unilaterally draw down without having to negotiate, say, a new lower thing, with new start? Like, could the U.S. just unilaterally withdraw and still have extended deterrence?
1: Well, certainly, you know, unilaterally uh, reducing and not worrying about what Russia did mm-hmm. is what the uh, Georgia, the George W. Bush administration said when it came in. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we don't need treaties because we'll do what we think we need to do with our force and we can reduce faster if we don't have these treaties and, you know, we're not, Russia's not our enemy. And so, uh, so, and it was the Russians who wanted a treaty. That was the SORT treaty, which was only a few pages long. (laughs) Recall that? Um, so that idea is not a new one that we should just do whatever it is we think our security requires as far as nuclear weapons. Um, However then do you do you not care that others have a lot of nuclear weapons do you have any leverage then to get them to come down right. you, no you don't
0: yeah. you have no leverage whatsoever. That, I mean that's I mean that's the, that's the argument if, if okay. you so if
1: it. you if really cared about arms control you know you want some things that you can use for, <laughs> for negotiating leverage the allies as I said before that's a big deal too so the if you do have um, a Competition, potential situations where you might find yourself in conflict with with certain nations. The perceptions, their perceptions matter, and as do the perceptions of your allies. But I guess you've solved that by saying we don't have allies anymore in this scenario. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know. If, I, saying, I don't think
0: it was that we don't have allies, but I think the idea was that uh, the nuclear umbrella wouldn't exist, like okay. the like our conventional, like. Um, I guess article five. When it was, I don't know. Like I said, it was, it was like mm. part of the premise was like no U S foreign bases, U.S. four and like nuclear yeah. umbrella. Like it was okay. very like,
1: great. And we don't care about proliferation, right? Because I can, <laughs> I mean, there may I think we'll be allies who if decide. I, they I, that's another, need their own.
0: this was not in this, this was in something else I read on one of the rocks recently, but it was like, if U S extended deterrence does not exist, just, just take one example. Like, look at Japan. They have missile technology. They have plenty of material through their, um, you know, nuclear energy component. Like, how quickly would they be able to assemble a weapon, kind of based off that spec? So you're already immediately adding a lot of countries. You know, you would so have a lot well, of NTP yeah, the violations. the debate is already on.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. there's a big public debate about should they have their, have nuclear weapons. Right. And remember, they had a program in the '70s, which we shut down. <laughs> which we said you can you can have the program, where you can have us as allies, but not both. Right. And that
2: was the, yeah. There is one interesting historical analogy that might be worth bringing up. Um, in the eighties, Reagan and Gorbachev came very close to um, massive reductions, mm-hmm. and it it, it didn't in happen. Eighty six. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen because Reagan would not give up um, SDI. Uh, and I think I want to say, was it a complete reduction, or was it just a like massive reduction? I mean, just ballistic missiles. Uh, yeah. Which, which, which I think the idea was um, that if the U.S. and the Soviets did that, then everyone else would follow suit because they wouldn't need those missiles anymore. Um, I guess that's one argument to consider is, you know, um, you know, like currently Russia and the United States have the most warheads, um, so if we reduced, you know, could we expect other countries to reduce? Well, or? okay,
1: why do other countries have nuclear weapons? Is it because the U.S. has nuclear weapons and Russia has nuclear weapons? I think for most countries, no, that's not the answer as to why they have nuclear weapons. So if we if we unilaterally or we and the Russians go way down, does that, if so facto, others will reduce too? No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Some countries may have them because of the conventional superiority that we have had. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll continue to have. But, but so I don't think there's a direct link between if we go down, everybody else will go down. I just... I haven't seen it play out and it doesn't make logical sense to me. Because their nuclear weapons aren't necessarily uh, about Russia or about well, India and Pakistan. They're about us and Russia?
2: Well, no. But I mean, like, it would be, okay, so like like if I followed the argument correctly um, is that uh, if, if, if the United States and Russia reduced, China would then theoretically reduce and then India would, you know, soon follow suit because uh, they wouldn't need as much. And then uh, Pakistan, uh, gr- granted, it's just an argument. I, I'm, I'm not saying I buy the whole argument. I'm just saying, um, you I know. I could say I don't. I'm not that. <laughs> <laughs> this is not picking on you, Matt. <laughs> well, I just thought it would be interesting to talk about because.
1: No,
0: um, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no I,
2: I, it, I,
1: is, <laughs> it is a good one. And, that's, yeah, and that because... is implicit but not explicit in the arguments that some people make. And I think it's good to make it explicit and then play with, feel it, wrestle with that and go, okay, does that, does that hold? What are they really saying? And does that ring true to me? Have we seen it in practice? Yeah,
0: some version of this would need to happen for there to be no nuclear weapons. Like some version of need to be reduced, everyone else is going to go down as well, and then we're all not going to have them.
1: And then we, and we can be certain that no one can have them can, can race to rearmament.
2: Yeah. So, so, going back to you that historical it. analogy yeah. I brought up, so the reason Reagan wouldn't give up SDI is because he thought, you know, okay, so like say we eliminate our ballistic missiles, what if some someone down the line is like, no, 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 I want to rearm? And then SDI would be up there, I guess, to be the protect all um, against those missiles. So, I mean, yeah, no, that's a, a valid, you know, argument. Um, you know, how do you prevent? I mean, and you brought up in the talk earlier, you know, like the scientists are still out there. The scientists thought still out there.
1: Like, material. Exactly.
2: It's Half all still life out is there. very long. And um, a lot of these countries have breakout periods uh, of a year or less. And of course, the breakout period is defined by um, how quickly uh, uh, a country can arm a a warhead. Um, so, I mean, no, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So, I mean, like if we do unilaterally disarm. The whole world. I mean, it, it seems like a pipe dream because you know how do you stop? Because like, you know, how do you stop like the Kim jong Un's uh, from you know secretly uh, proliferating? Mm-hmm. And
0: you could argue that any stability. It's not a bomb in
1: a basement. It's the it's the program in the tunnel that.
0: <laughs> you could argue that any stability that nuclear weapons bring through deterrence is because they're known quantities and mutually assured destruction at some some degree strategically is how it works. But when they're all secret, that. Arguably, could lead to greater escalation than as like a like a stabilizing thing. Um, Yeah, I mean,
1: (laughs) mad is not my favorite phrase, but but, because yeah, I mean,
0: it's a little old-fashioned, perhaps.
1: (laughs) Uh, But the ability to, uh, if you damage me in a major way, I can inflict damage on you. Therefore, don't do it. I mean that 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 I do agree with because certainly.
2: It's also very hard in general to arm and secret because you know the facilities aren't small. Like um, I know in like Iran's case, um, if they built a bunch of uh, centrifuges, you know the intelligence community would probably know, and they would say, "Oh, they're building these centrifuges because they want to enrich uranium too." I think what is it, ninety-five percent is weapons grade, and if they're building a lot of them, that means they're trying to enrich a large you know amount of uranium. So, and then you have uh, the whole you know. Delivery apparatuses, you know, you like you have to build those missiles, the bases,
0: and so on and so forth. You mean like India's space program? There's no, there's no dual use to that technology whatsoever.
2: Well, I mean, you know, uh, Iran says the same thing about their ballistic missiles as they say, you know, there there is no dual use. Like it's just, you know, conventional. But um, there's the worry that, uh, you know, they could.
1: Yeah, have the technology. Yeah. They've even proven the missile technology, not intercontinental, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of, lots of ballistic missiles. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All right. Um, I guess one more kind of topic, like we'll broaden it out a little bit. Uh, I was wondering if you would, this was, I guess, slightly after your time of leaving the DOD, but uh, do you want to talk about the NDS a little bit?
1: Um, a little bit. Um, so... I think the big takeaway with the with the national security strategy in the NDS is both are uh, great power competition. That that's that's where we are. That uh, the focus uh, should be and is now on um, Russia and China, uh, drawn down in some of the commitments, some of the, the, the ongoing wars in the Middle East. Afghanistan, Iraq, so forth. Um, How soon we'll be able to really be out of those is another question. But I think the the great power competition and looking at the future uh, of those two countries is is the big organizing principle for the NDS, for the Mm -hmm. National Defense Strategy. I mean, it flows from the National Security Strategy, which this year, I mean, this, this year, this administration actually came out before the National Defense Strategy, which it came out before the Nuclear Posture Review. Sometimes those get reversed in order. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in classrooms, you always hear that the National Security Strategy comes first, and then it comes the NDS, and then comes the the, the the other reviews, the lesser reviews. But, uh, but you know, I'll, I'll hand it to them. They actually did that this time. We haven't done that in decades. Uh, so the, the Great Power Competition, if it really does, if it's to refocus um defense it really is going to put a lot more emphasis i think on r&d we mm-hmm. have seen some increase in the percentage of the defense budget going to r&d but that's it's really hard uh po- politically bureaucratically it's really hard to put so much emphasis on programs that people are not yet vested in right r&d programs uh, don't have a lot of money in congressional districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a, a, a fighter pilot constituency or an ICBM constituency or whatever other you can you can name them. Oh yeah. Uh, special ops constituency. They don't have those things, and so it's really hard to prioritize in a defense budget. And I know I know Kathleen Hicks has written about this because that's <laughs> that's her. Uh, it's hard to, pri- to, to put the priorities on the things that you think you really need for the strategy that you want to carry out because the bureaucratics, the politics of it all definitely come into play and I have the scars to prove it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. On that note, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and coming here to, to Gispia and Pitt to, to talk to us all. And uh, thank Matt, too, for uh, yeah. coming on taking time out of his day. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Any, Enjoyed uh, the discussion. Any yeah. last yeah. comments for our, our listeners?
1: No. Uh, you know, goodness. I, I Having worked on these issues for 40 years and now being out of government, all I can say is uh, we're passing those along to, you know, the generation after me and, and you. So uh, please uh, work on them and solve them because we couldn't. <laughs>
0: Save the world, basically. Yeah, yeah,
1: basically.
0: (laughs) All right. On that note, thank you listeners for tuning in. And uh, hopefully you'll listen to us next month. Thank you.